Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca/slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code CANADALAND at checkout to get 10% off. Denise Balkasun. <laughs> What, where are you, who are you writing for these days? Uh, I'm doing most of my stuff for the Globe. I'm doing some stuff for Chatelaine. Um, there's a new editor in chief of Chatelaine. Oh yeah. Did you see that, Leanne George? Although, oh, yeah. from the Grid. Yeah, former Grid, former okay. Grid editor. I did see that. Yes. Yep. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Oh, thank you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Julian Patet, Graham Slot, Alex Drobyshev, Greg Houston, Dan Scott, Kevin Dwyer. Rita Smith, Belle Unra, and Michelle Champagne. Michelle, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the minds of young guns should never be wasted, and uh, they should be heard and put up and out, and they should be debated. 
And I support Canada Land because it's restless. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Denise, you've got uh, an online and physical magazine, The Ethnic Isle. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not physical yet. It will be. It will be next year. We'll do our first print edition. Okay. And you have a Patreon for that effort that I just was happy to support today and everybody else should go check it out. Thank you. But you got a beautiful website. Mm -hmm. How did you make the website? It's on Squarespace. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but I had a look at it. I'm like, it's beautiful and simple and it looks like a Squarespace design site. Yeah. So I don't design it. Our designer's name is Simon Yao. um, And so he did make a beautiful site. And Squarespace is fairly easy for someone like me to use. So there you go. Simple, powerful, beautiful, 24-7 support via live chat and email. And are you on the $8 a month plan? Is that the one? Do you Simon know? knows. Simon knows. Me. So yeah, it starts at 8 bucks a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year to Squarespace. It's got responsive design. So you design it once and it'll work on a tablet, on a phone. It'll, it'll adjust itself based on how people are viewing it. And you can do e-commerce on any Squarespace site. It comes with its free online store. You know, you have a wonderful designer. If you don't have a wonderful designer, Squarespace has wonderful designers. You can just pick your favorite design and put your content into it. So do this. If you need a website, start a trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today. And when you do sign up, make sure to use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your purchase and you will be showing your support for this show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So, Denise, mm. Bono. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. Okay, good. No Bono. 
What's my hashtag? No Bono. Defamation case against former Olympic boss John Furlong filed by freelance journalist Laura Robinson begins today. Robinson wrote an article about Furlong published in the Georgia Strait newspaper three years ago. It alleged Furlong had abused students at a Burns Lake Catholic school 40 years ago. Having experienced this reporter on many occasions in the past, this feels very much like a personal vendetta. Prior to the Olympic Games, I was advised that for a payment, it could be made to go away. Robinson denied Furlong's allegations. He sued her and the Georgia Strait. Eventually, he dropped both lawsuits. Defending the lawsuit against her from Furlong cost her $150,000. Robinson is having a tough time given Furlong's comments, which damaged her reputation. A tough time getting her stories published. Denise, are you following this trial? It's on right now. I am. I think Laura Robinson is on the stand as we speak. I think she might be getting cross-examined right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you make of everything that's happening? Uh, I think it's pretty interesting that now what's left is her suit against him. Um, but, I mean, she she needs the money aside from her reputation. If she wins, my understanding is that she has to prove the damage to her career. But what she spent defending herself against his suit, which he dropped— that's not anything she can get compensation for. Good for her sticking up for herself. I mean, she tried in her reporting to get in touch with him a bunch of times. Um, and the whole basis of his suit was that she was not a responsible reporter. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. It seems to me that she tried to do a pretty thorough job. But then I don't know, did anyone ever find out why the star decided not to go with her story? Like why they decided not to publish it? Yeah, I think they presented into evidence um, an email from the star saying, um, and it rang very familiar to me because mm-hmm. I received an email from uh, Kevin Donovan of the star that very similarly said, it's not that we don't think that this isn't true. Mm-hmm. And I think what they said was in the email that she got, squeamishness on high, that somebody in the top offices was squeamish about the story and about the ability to defend the story in court. Nobody doubted the the truth of the story. But it's interesting because, you know, with these accusations and counter accusations, there's a lot of background to this. And if you're confused by what we're talking about, rather than try to synopsize the entire thing, there's an episode of Candleland where I interview Laura Robinson about her expose of John Furlong and Mm -hmm. the allegations by many, many First Nations Canadians that he abused them physically. There were accusations of sexual abuse that was not a part of of Laura Robinson's journalism. Um, Those were independent. And it's interesting, when he was filing a libel claim against her, had that actually gone to court, then he would have, in effect, been putting himself on trial. Right. You know, because truth is a defense against a libel claim. It's consistent with what what an innocent person would do. Mm -hmm. This is not true and I'm suing. But, but then, then they never bring it. They never like bring it. Like a Ford brother. <laughs> right. It never actually ends up in court because then the person they're suing is going to go and they can bring in all kinds of evidence that, they, that didn't even make it into the actual uh, piece of journalism. And Laura Robinson, then it would have been about John Furlong's past and what he did do. And well, so her lawyer is saying that he never intended to go through with his libel suit, right? That he just brought it um, as a way to have the media coverage be a chance for him to clear his name in the court of public opinion and never mind what happens in the actual court of law. Whether I think that's right or not, that is a technique that is used. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you could argue that it was very strategic what he did because he, he sued the Georgia Strait, the newspaper that published her and her. But when he found out that the Georgia Strait's libel insurance did not cover Laura Robinson, he dropped the suit against the Georgia Strait right. and yeah. kept the suit against her. Right. And so that's what I guess what I meant when I said good for her is that she – 
she's sticking up for herself and she believes in her own work, apparently. And um, I think that's pretty great. I think you and I have talked on this show before about the vulnerability of freelancers, right? Because, yeah, we're not we're often not covered by libel coverage by whichever publication we do our stories for. Um, To me, it just shows that she she believes in her work and. Yeah, and it really that means brings a lot up, to me. Uh, I mean, I feel bad for her that she has to, in proving damages, she has to prove that her income has taken a hit, which it, it did. I mean, she went from earning 52 grand a year as a freelancer in 2011 to it dropping 23 grand in 2012, then down to 12 in 2013, now down to just like around $10,000. The way that the industry has treated her, the way that her colleagues have treated her, the way that editors at different publications have treated her, she testified that an editor at a magazine said, hey, we'll publish you, but only under another name. Oh, goodness. That just because Furlong was call you know the, what what he's on trial for like saying that she is on a personal vendetta against him saying that she has a history of a bad of being a, a lousy journalist who's got a problem with male authority figures in sports um saying that she filed sex abuse complaints with the RCMP on behalf of her sources in the story, mm-hmm. which to my knowledge, there is no proof of whatsoever. She says, she says it's a complete fabrication. And as we heard in that clip pack where he, you know, that's a very pointed accusation. I mean, it's it's insinuated, but it's, it seems very clear to me that he's saying, I was told that for money, I can make this go away. Yeah, I'd never actually heard that until that, until you just played that clip. Like, I hadn't heard that at all. I mean, that's a crazy smear. And I, I think, you know, as we speak, uh, I, she's going to get cross-examined and then I, I have to imagine Furlong's going to be on, on, on the stand. I'm guessing that they're going to argue that, no, 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 that's not what we meant by that. But that that's the meaning I took right. from it. And, you know, any editor looking at this is like, wow, like, is this some scurrilous, you know, completely amoral person who, A, has a vendetta? But which is it? Does she have a vendetta against male authority figures in sports or is she trying to get like a payday by blackmailing him? Like, right. whatever it is. I guess that could be part of her vendetta. I guess so. Taking their money. I guess so. Whatever it is, like, either this industry mm-hmm. bought that story or they were so put off and scared by those allegations that they just didn't want to be associated with her because it's true. She she has, uh, she has can't get published, you know. Well, I mean, people who um, had worked with her before and had done good work with her before who didn't assign her after that, um, that is not cool. Yeah. For someone who hadn't worked with her – I could see them being scared because they were, that's a big deal. Like if if she had actually accused him of those things without any sort of verification or without any foundation, like that's – who would want to work with that person, right? And if you'd never worked with her before, yeah. that's all you would know about her. I know, but these are professionals and – what she is telling the court right now, she's opening up her books and saying, here's what I did. Mm-hmm. I, I I went up to Burns Lake. I flew to Ireland. Here are the number of people I, I interviewed. Here are the, the three times that in person I went to John Furlong for comment. So she is basically like subjecting herself to like, you know, you want to you call me a lousy journalist? Let's look at what I did. Yeah. And so that information is stuff that she shared with me when she was in this room on this show. Mm-hmm. It's information that she would share with any editor who's like, look, I've got my doubts about you as a journalist right now. And so, you know, the question – that this brings up for me, it's like what's suggested by what you were saying is as we move towards more reliance on freelancers for the biggest stories, mm-hmm. you know, for investigative stories, uh, what do we owe them? What do news organizations owe them? Because you you have – you can't have it both ways where you've gutted your own internal investigative teams yep. 
you need these freelancers to bring you these stories. And then as soon as their stuff comes under scrutiny, and that's that's what happens every time, you assault the credibility of the journalist. Mm-hmm. And when they're a freelancer, it's a lot easier to assault the credibility of a freelancer than it is some, I am with the CBC, I am of this newspaper. It's just, oh, yeah. this is just some, who is it? It's just some freelance writer with a grudge, some, some hack who, you know. Well, and I think also that's why a lot of younger freelancers, like you need to know if you're writing something at all sensitive, you need to make sure that you are covered by their libel coverage. Like that needs to be a conversation that you have with your editor in the contract that says they own every word that you write, you know, throughout the universe and something that's not invented yet. um, You need to say like, what happens? What happens to this? And you need to push it. And like, I know that people are really eager to get their stuff published, but it is not worth it. It is not worth it if it's something that's dangerous or sensitive. No, I mean, she got paid $2,500 for the story. And she's, you know, 150000 I think more in the whole. For everything combined, I think it's more, closer to two hundred. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, it's a legal question. Are you covered legally? But I, I feel like it's a moral question and a professional question as right. well. Like, what does it mean when an editor commissions a piece, edits a piece, signs off on a piece for publication? And, you know, I, I got into trouble before. Uh, I, I didn't have a clear sense of where the Georgia Strait was on this because it's true their libel insurance didn't cover them, but but they knew that and she knew that mm-hmm. and she was willing to go through with that risk. Okay, so she, she went ahead with the story knowing that it would be on her, um, and that's probably out of the hands of the editors uh, of the Georgia Strait that has to do with their libel insurance. But you know, I think it's it's a question for everybody to be asking is like, what is right? What do we owe these people for whom we rely on for the stories that we publish? Right. She fundraised for some of her. Yeah. So how did that go? I, I think she's done like a continuous fundraising online, in person. She's you know she's been relying on friends, and she's got a partner who I think has subsidized part of the the, the case. Yeah. So we'll see how it plays out. Anything else on that one? I don't think so. I mean, that was weird for me because they. Uh, oh yeah, can we talk about that? Yeah, but that can't go in. They said to me a million times, "This is like." Oh, we can't talk about it on the show. I don't think so. I mean, I didn't sign anything. It was just his but, team. Yeah, but we they can totally j- talk about that. Yeah, I mean, th- so. Let's talk about it, and then and then, you'll, and then like you'll have like a couple hours, and we won't use it if you don't want us to. Well, because it just I would like to talk about it. I just I mean, what can they do? Nothing, I guess, right? No, how can they? You can't approach somebody with something and then say yeah. you, you, we're gagging you on this. And you haven't signed anything because it was pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> what what happened? Um, because what they wanted to know. So so this is John Furlong's team. Yeah. So you told me earlier that John Furlong's legal team approached you to be a witness. For the defense. Yeah. Well, they asked me to be an expert witness. And so they sent me, there's um, a former Toronto Star editor who Laura Robinson's team asked to be the expert witness. So they sent me his um, analysis of her work and it looked totally airtight to me. Um, And so I wasn't really sure why they would contact me because I don't know what in my journalism profile seems to say that what I might say would um, defend him. But I guess I I wrote a column for The Globe about the scandal at the University of Virginia and about um, the The, journalists there. The Rolling Stone rape story. Yeah. It kind of fell apart. Yeah. And it looked like uh, that the woman who the the sexual assault was not the way it was presented in the story or if it even existed. Well, they failed on the most basic test of did you ask the other side for their side of it? Yes. Right. Which is, I guess, why I said that about Laura Robinson, because like that is the most basic test. And she had tried to talk to John Furlong multiple times. Yeah. Um, so this is not really rele- like related to the journalism, but 
um, what his lawyer wanted to know is, did I think that someone who stood to make financial gain in something um, would be a good source? And what she meant was that the payments that were going out to, I guess, um, former residents of residential schools or um, people who could prove that they had been sexually assaulted or molested in the schools um, did stand to get a percentage of money from the federal government. It hasn't been very much, by the way. Like some people I heard got like $400 or something. Um, So I guess what she wanted me or what she was hoping would happen on the stand is that someone would say that people said either to Laura Robinson or in general that John Furlong had sexually abused them in order to get a payment from this yeah. fund set up for, That's, for that just indigenous pass victims. A certain, like initial smell test in that saying that to uh, a court mm-hmm. or, or saying that to a journalist rather uh, for their story doesn't get you any money. Saying that to the, you know, what is it, the Truth and Reconciliation, you know, yes. that might get you a payment if, if you are this fraudulent accuser. But yes. saying that to Laura Robinson doesn't get you anything. Right. And, and the second smell test problem is that that's not what Laura Robinson was reporting. Yes. Right. Right. <laughs> so. I mean, the thing that upset me about it, too, is that, like, when you're talking about the sexual abuse of children, it's like, I don't know. <sighs> You know, my understanding of these memories is that sometimes people don't remember what happened to them. And, you know, maybe they've been addicts for a long time because of things that happened to them. And to suggest that uh, it was just it would just seem very much like me more um, picking apart vulnerable people for. Yeah. Not a very good cause. Yeah. And that's what they were. And this would have been a paid position as an expert witness for furlongs. I guess so. We never got to the point of talking money or anything. Like basically once um once his team started asking me questions along those lines, I said that I didn't think anything that I could offer would be of use to his defense and we sort of ended it there. And they asked you to not talk about that? Yes. Right. Do they like that's yeah. That's I didn't sign anything, so, you yeah. know. <laughs> I yeah. I wonder who they got. Here comes my libel suit now. Um. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've got the full email exchange for it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we'll find out who who uh, who agreed to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Sunday Times of London reported that Russia and China teamed up and cracked the encryption in Edward Snowden files, exposing the identities of MI6 agents who the UK had to pull out of active service on the field. And here is what the reporter who brought that expose to light had to say when he was questioned about his story. I'm joined now by Tom Harper. He is the home affairs correspondent for The Sunday Times who is reporting this story. How do senior officials at Number 10 Downing Street know that these files were breached? Um, Well, I don't know uh, the answer to that, George. Um, We just publish uh, what we believe to be the position of the British government at the moment. So essentially, you're reporting what the government is saying, but as far as the evidence, you know, to, to substantiate it, you're not really able to, to comment or, or to explain that at this point, right? No. This is the kind of reporting that has single-handedly destroyed the credibility of journalism around the world. That clip that you played from the reporter for the Sunday Times, 
is the funniest thing I've ever heard. You ask him, are you only just repeating claims from the government? And he says, oh no, we have many sources. That journalist is a liar um, who's doing nothing but writing down what his government friends tell him to and then giving them anonymity to protect it. It's a ridiculous story. Well, we got to hear uh, Glenn Greenwald's British accent there. <laughs> um, okay, so this is what happened in Canada with that story. Uh, there was a Reuters wire service report that presented that Sunday Times story in the cowardly way that secondary sources often do. Uh, and the headline, which ran on cbc.ca, the original headline, read, Russia, comma, China, crack Edward Snowden files, UK pulls out spies, semicolon, report. So we're not reporting this. Mm-hmm. We're reporting that there exists a report. Right. This is consistent with what the security establishment has been trying to smear Snowden with from the start, which is this guy's a traitor and he's putting lives at risk. It's a very shocking, startling headline that really transforms how people might think of Edward Snowden. Is he a hero? Uh, Is he a patriot or is he a traitor? And it just turned out to be complete bullshit. Right. I mean, it it looks like it's bullshit. And and Greenwald dissected that Mm -hmm. Sunday Times Mm -hmm. report on The Intercept. Um, on a number of points, I think he discredited it. He wrote that uh, this ha- pertains to MI6 agents that had to be removed. Mm-hmm. after this. Well, the M- MI6 agents are not mentioned in any of the Snowden files, according to his co- colleague Ryan Gallagher, who's like read them all. Uh, and then the number of Snowden documents that apparently Snowden had taken from the NSA, that number was wrong. And then I think the most damning thing that Greenwald got into in this uh, Sunday Times story was that when Glenn Greenwald's husband, David Miranda, was detained by authorities, well, in the Sunday Times story, it reports that he had just met with Edward Snowden in Moscow when he was detained and he was carrying classified documents. Well, like that is actually demonstrably false. Right. He'd never met Edward Snowden. He wasn't coming from Moscow. He didn't have any. Like, it, And in fact, the uh, Sunday Times removed that detail from their original story without any correction Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's so, so embarrassing. Very embarrassing. As embarrassing as that CNN interview you heard with the reporter, yeah. who essentially just admits like, well, this is what the government told us and that's what we ran. Mm-hmm. You know, which is one thing when it's like, okay, if, if there's an official government position about something, then that is newsworthy. And whether it's... Well, then you name the person who's saying it to you. That's it. Right. That's it. So as the story is gradually revealed to be like very likely a bullshit story, CBC is making changes to the Reuters story that they picked up. At a certain point, they change the headline. Mm-hmm. And the, the new headline is, Journalists Slam Article mm-hmm. Claiming Russia and China Cracked Edward Snowden Files. So the complete opposite. Yes. Yeah. It's the complete opposite, mm-hmm. which is fine. It's fine to make a mistake, and it's great to correct that mistake, or I shouldn't say correct, but it's great to move to the truth from a mistake. Mm-hmm. But... When the CBC headline says that the original story has been slammed, Mm -hmm. they neglect to mention that it's a story that they essentially picked up. Right. There's no retraction. There's no correction. It's like it never existed. Right. What do you think about that? (laughs) Um, I think generally you shouldn't take things down at all because it opens you up to this kind of criticism. Um, I mean, I don't even like to to take down tweets. (laughs) Because I think 
what's more important is if I see something even, you know, in a very basic place like Twitter um, that seems too shocking or too good to be true, it's really important to look into it. Again, so you don't take something down. If you want to make a correction, you make a correction and that correction should link people to your original mistake. And at the bottom of the mistake, which should stay up, it should have like a bold sort of like correction with a link to the fix. Um, And I sort of stole this idea from Kelly McBride, who's Um, the ethics writer or the ethics mind at the Pointer Institute. And so she said, basically, you should never take anything down. But if you do take it down, you shouldn't just disappear it. You should have the URL direct to either a blank page or a page that explains why it was taken down. And then you should also on your site have a permanent sort of like code of conduct about making corrections and about taking things down that people can always refer to if they want to, because you want to be transparent. And the main thing is that you want your audience to trust you. And so, yes, as you said, everyone makes mistakes. And so what you need to do is fix those in a grown up and professional way. Yeah. And there there are standards in print journalism around, and every paper has its policies around, when do you correct? When do you update? When do you have a clarification? When do you, right. um, but just like disappearing something is is pretty much the worst thing you could do. Mm-hmm. I asked the CBC, like, okay, what happened here? And they gave me kind of like this sort of like web ba- baffle gab uh, yeah. about like, no, 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 we didn't disappear anything. And there's no correction needed, no retraction needed. Uh, Marissa Nelson is a senior online producer at CBC.ca told me, well, we don't publish like a magazine or a newspaper. I mean, this is the web. Uh, so the quote is, we publish iteratively, updating and evolving as the news evolves. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's interesting. Uh, so can you send me a copy of the original piece that it evolved from? And then she just hasn't responded to that. Right. So I think that this is just another way to pretend that it never happened. And like mm-hmm. people are very forgiving of error if you just own up to it. I think that like I don't want to blame it all on, on, on Marissa Nelson. I think that like again, mm-hmm. it reflects an environment where it's very difficult in a bureaucratic environment for somebody to say – we probably should have given more scrutiny to that wire story before was we published it. Was the CBC it. the only one that put it up? No, it was it was widely carried. I haven't had a close yeah. look at who else in the Canadian media put it up, but yeah. uh, that's the one that got attention because, and it's it's the Streisand effect. It came to my attention with readers saying you got to look into this because they, they just switched around the headlines, yeah. and it was the number one story on CBC.ca that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was. It's just worth like flagging it here. I think. But it brings up another big question, too, which is one of the main, you know, or Greenwald's main complaint Mm -hmm. about the original Sunday Times story is that the reporter was just taking anonymous comments from a government source and saying, well, you're a government source, so it's good enough for me. When you give a government official anonymity, you got to ask yourself, why does that government official want anonymity? And it, it was an interesting one for me because I just heard Seymour Hirsch mm-hmm. speak in Halifax, you know, a legendary investigative reporter who uh, exposed the Mylay massacre in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And he's under fire now because he has a report that relies heavily on anonymous senior government officials or, or you know, uh, spooks who gave him information that the Osama bin Laden uh, execution didn't happen the way the White House says it happened. And he gave anonymity to his sources, and that story has been criticized. Do I have a double standard because I happen to believe the Seymour Hersh story is true and the Sunday Times story about Snowden is false? I I don't think so as much as I can try to parse my Mm -hmm. own biases here. The difference is that when – Seymour Hirsch was granting anonymity to a senior government source. Like there's yes. no there's no obvious yeah. way that it helps Washington to have their own narrative completely contradicted. 
Mm-hmm. But it completely, in the case of the Snowden story, it absolutely helps the security establishment's position to paint Snowden as a traitor who exposed the, these uh, government agents and spies and a- anti-terrorist fighters to, to danger. If you're contradicting your government to, to bring the truth to a reporter, you would need anonymity. If you are agreeing with them, yeah, <laughs> this you, is a terrible guy, and he's made us all unsafe. Terrible guy, and yeah. Russia and China have have cracked this stuff, and we've had to pull agents off the field, and he's a traitor. Don't use my name. Like, what is that? Like, the mm-hmm. only like, it, it's just the Occam's razor. Like, the reason why that person wants anonymity is probably because they don't want to be accountable for what they said, which might be because what they said isn't true. Mm-hmm. Don't take stuff down. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I am on Twitter at Jesse Brown. Denise, where can people find you? I am also on Twitter at Balkasoon, which has two S's and two O's. And you can also read The Ethnic Isle at theethnicisle.com. And you'll find a link to their Patreon there. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunder is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like this show, support it. Oh my gosh, I think I should have had coffee. I'm sorry if I was dumb. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.